0: Is doing. I hope you had a restful week last week however you chose to spend it. I hope that you got some good food in your bellies and that you were able to connect with some of your family or take some time off work. I know that my family and I did a group Zoom call so that's always fun especially across different states and getting to see everyone and and see how their weather's going. It's crazy. So my family lives in Vermont and, or some of my family does, and I live in Florida. And this morning it was colder than Vermont in Florida. It was like 48 degrees here and it was 52 degrees there. So I was like, I woke up, I put the baby in shorts and a t-shirt and stepped outside and was like, holy smokes, I cannot send you to school in this. So I you know went back inside and got some proper clothes on that kid and changed myself uh but I love being pregnant during uh winter time or during cold weather because I'm all about sweaters anyway, but they're super cute like maternity sweaters. I feel like so i'm I'm feeling the winter vibe today. I'm really excited about today's guest because stable moment's podcast has almost been around for a year. Can you believe that? I remember starting this in January and here we go. It's almost been a year and I feel badly because I have not had the voice of a birth mom on here, right? And we always talk about supporting biological parents, but what does that look like? And we should hear from and elevate the actual voices of birth moms. So that's what we're doing today with Ashley Mitchell. She is the founder of Sit Knee to Knee and she actually has developed curriculum that adoption agencies can use. Um, to support birth moms and make sure that they don't get lost in the shuffle because most of those agencies just happen to cater to the uh, adoptive parents. They're the ones writing the checks, right? So, So she kind of paves the way and advocates for birth moms to make sure that they do not feel alone and they get the counseling that they need after giving their child up for adoption. She also serves all birth moms. You can go to her website, sitknee and I will link her Instagram and all of that in the show notes. So I'm excited for you guys to meet Ashley. Here she is. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local community. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for being on the podcast. I'm so excited that I was able to reach out to you and you were so responsive. Which, (laughs) Well, you're maybe
1: one person that I've been responsive to.
0: (laughs) I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Yeah. I I just love being able to reach out and hear from people that are like, they're advocates. They're they're excited to spread the word. So thank you for for being here. Yes.
1: Thank you for inviting me. When you reached out and um, shared, you know, wanting to have a birth mother voice on. Absolutely, of course. <laughs> I'm all in. There. Yeah, and it's um, some,
0: it's something that that we lack for sure. So I'm so excited to bring this to our community. If you can just introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and then tell us a little bit about your journey into motherhood.
1: Uh, oh goodness. So I am Ashley Mitchell. I placed my son for adoption almost 15 years ago. So that's how motherhood found me. The first time it was my very first time becoming a mother, my very first baby. was a boy, my son, Derek, and, um, I placed him for adoption through domestic infant adoption. And we have been navigating for almost 15 years and it has changed 8 million times, which has been interesting. (laughs) And we're definitely in a season that is beautiful and wonderful. Um, it was not what we planned when we walked into it. Um, but my husband and I have two children that we parent. We have a um, 10 year old, almost 11 year old and an eight year old, almost nine year old. (laughs) So um, that are all very much a part of this open adoption relationship, which was not what we expected either. And so now we're here just trying to figure it out. Um, His family is amazing and we love them and we've worked really hard at our relationship. Um, I definitely found myself pregnant. I was 25 and It's just been this crazy, crazy journey of self-discovery and forgiveness and healing from myself and then being able to accept that and project that onto society and what that's looked like. And it's been really tough. It's been really tough. Um, and now I'm just in the throes of it all the time and constantly changing and evolving and helping others, um, do it better and more ethical. if I could write a book on not what to do, then we would all be fine. <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: no, I hear that. So, just so that our audience has uh, the perspective, if you can bring us back to 15 years ago, or more, maybe maybe 16 years ago, and you're finding out you're pregnant, what are what's going on, and what brings you to the the decision? I'm going to go ahead and choose adoption.
1: So I always get asked this question. I'm always like, Oh, I don't know if you want to really know the answer. <laughs> well, we do. We love the truth here. <laughs> okay. Um, and I know people, you know, invite me to come and speak on these things cause they know that I'll share these things, but I think that's very important to understand. Um, there's just this beautiful propaganda around adoption that is just so beautiful and amazing and the selfless loving thing. And these foster families are amazing and taking in these children and, but I think we're missing such a huge voice. And obviously I'm a 100% advocate for the birth parents. Um, But that's because my journey started before my world collided with the adoptive family. And so it starts in this unplanned pregnancy. and trying to decide what that's going to look like. And it's tough when um, definitely for me, there was so much um, deeply ingrained religious culture that was a part of Um, some of that decision-making my family, the disappointment. So when I'm making my list, um, you know, when, what, whether we're deciding to carry these babies to term or not, are we going to have an abortion? Are we going to not, those things have to be figured out before we get into our parenting options. Adoption is not the opposite of abortion. And so we have to like really, really get straight about that and what that looks like. Um, because. We have to decide are we carrying the baby to term or not? And then we look into parenting options. Am I gonna parent or is someone else gonna parent? But they are separate. And so for me, it was like the only reality in such a scary and um devastating place is I'm pregnant and I need not to be. Like, oh my god, how is this happening? I mean I mean we know how it happened, but you know what I mean. Like it's sure. just like the how is this my life right now? And oh my gosh, I'm, I can't be pregnant. I can't be pregnant. I can't be pregnant. Like That's 100% when you're in a situation like mine, that's all That's all consuming. And the only way that I know to not be pregnant anymore is the abortion. And so um, I my journey to adoption did start in an abortion clinic. And I know that there's countless women out there that have a very similar story to mine. And so I think it's important to put light on it to eliminate some of that shame in that, because it is reality, regardless of how we personally feel about it, that fear and that desperation and that crisis, um, Mm. it, it affects a lot of our decision-making. And so, um, I actually was two weeks too far along, um, here in the state of Utah, Mm. which was just, you know, I look back now and I'm like, man me and that kid, man, we had, we had something bigger for us planned because it was pretty crazy. It's really actually a pretty amazing story, but finding myself two weeks too far along. So now, you know, this whole new reality of now you're pregnant, whether you want to be or not. (laughs) And what is the reality of that look like? And that, um, then came into determining, um, that adoption felt like the best for me.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, I'm glad that you brought up all of those, realities. I think that people do often say, you know, choose life and choose adoption. And it just feels
1: too easy the way that it's
0: promoted. Well,
1: and I think we're missing the people that are having to make those decisions. I mean, if we just care about the baby. Then of course it makes sense to just choose life, but we're but if we're not seeing the women that are having to make those choices for not understanding the mindset, if we're not willing to step up and fill the gap, if she does choose life we're miss, we're missing it we're m- missing it all day and so i think it's important to really make that distinction that we can choose life but are you supporting the women that are choosing life did you feel
0: supported um you know so now you you didn't get the reality of you weren't going to be pregnant you were going to be pregnant yeah. and you carried to term so so you had to face the reality of people knowing you were pregnant and going through that whole process what
1: how were you received? Um, so I kept my pregnancy a secret, almost my whole pregnancy. Um, that burden that, uh, and I, and I, if you, if you know me or been following me and if you don't, congratulations, you're going to learn really quickly. Like these (laughs) these aren't things that we have done casually. I, I, I'm talking about it and I'm back there 15 years later. Like this is, uh, this is very real and fresh all the time. You know, people are always like, "Time heals," and I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't though." <laughs> like, I we <laughs> learn to expand and coexist with it. But carrying that pregnancy as a secret because I was so terrified of what, how people were going to talk to me, and and the disappointment, and the the church, and my family, and the shame, and the embarrassment, and my coworkers, and my friends, and blah 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 blah. blah, blah you know, this huge long list that now is my reality. Plus having to give birth. I've never had a baby. I don't know what that means to give. I don't even know what you're supposed to do, you know, when in delivery and things like that. And so, um, I carried that a secret for the whole pregnancy. I didn't have any prenatal care. I didn't have any support through the pregnancy and that burden, um, it's crushing. And so I live in Utah and so I was pregnant during the winter and, you know, we get a lot of snow, so it was easy to wrap up in all the coats and the Mm -hmm. big sweaters and the, you know, so, you know, there's so many things I look back now and the timing of things I was like, man, thank God that it was, that it played out like this. Um, But, you know, at night when I get to take all the layers off and unwrap my belly and like just sit in the reality it was a lot, it was a lot, um so, but at some point, that baby was gonna come, <laughs> whether I was ready or not, so right. you know, I could wish it into you know non existence, but that's just not how that works so um, I did uh, finally have to sit down and tell my parents and um you know i'm at, I'm almost twenty six like it's not like I was you know twelve, I was not like I was right. fourteen, you know there's all these misconceptions that you know these women are so young and these young teens. And I'm like, no, we're 25 to 36. We are adult women that are still like crushed and by this embarrassing shame, you know? And, and so sitting down, talking to my parents, navigating this and, um, by the next morning, I had an appointment, you know, at the adoption agency. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of that was, Um, I think I was pretty clear that I didn't want to parent. Um, obviously the way that this journey started was pretty clear. And maybe that was more, I didn't want the pregnancy. So parenting is a different conversation, right? I don't want the pregnancy, but now do I want to parent or not parent? Um, and so adoption was the other option. And so we went to an agency and I sat down and talked with the caseworker and that started the snowball of where we are now changed everything. Mm-hmm. When I walked through that door at that agency, it changed my entire life <laughs> forever.
0: Yeah. Did you feel like you had support then? Like you had, now I've told someone now there's some solution on the horizon.
1: Well, it definitely. So the limbo is horrible. The not knowing in the dread that nine months, nine months is a long time when you are in limbo and that back and forth and all of the heartbreak and the shame and the hurt, not even talking about the birth father issues. And I mean, there's so much in that nine months of that limbo. And so, yeah, I think, I think there's a sense of peace, at least for me, that was like, at least we have, at least I know which direction we're moving. At least we're moving somewhere, whether it's perfect or the, the, the best decision or whatever, at least it was something because the limbo was gonna kill me. Um, and so I think that there was definitely some relief in that. I definitely was supported by my parents in that choice. Um, they were there, you know, met the caseworker, were a part of that process. And so, yeah, I, did I feel supported? Absolutely. And I definitely think there was relief knowing that at least we were doing something. Because I didn't want to be randomly still in secret and in hiding, giving birth at a Walmart. And then being right. now what are we supposed to So I appreciated the steps that at least felt like we were accomplishing something.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the process of
1: choosing who is going to parent. <laughs> um, so I think picking a stranger out of the book is literally the stupidest thing on the planet. <laughs> um, it's crazy. It, it is crazy. It's crazy. Uh, it is the process. And I don't know that there's a better solution, but right, yeah. <laughs> I was given a stack of 50 profiles and I, I don't know an agency in the country now that would give you that many at a time. There's a lot of controversy around um, how many families the women should be looking at at a time. Um, but back then, you know, they were eight and a half by 11 sheet protectors. They were scrapbook pages. We didn't have like the gorgeous, you know, profile books and things like that, that we have websites. So they had like little, like hello kitty stickers on them. (laughs) You know, it was just scrapbook pages. And so I looked through a stack of 50 and she was like my caseworker, her name was Rebecca. And she was like, if you need more. You know, and I was like, no, no, this is ridiculous. Like I will find someone to smile. Um, And that process, there's a couple of things you have to understand. Um, first of all, picking a stranger to be the parents of your book or <laughs> to be the parents of your child <laughs> through their book is, is so, the, the overwhelm is just unbelievable. And the blind faith that you are who you say you are in your book that I can trust that and be comfortable with that. I mean, who who puts their child in the care of a stranger? We don't do that when we're looking for a babysitter for our kids. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so, but there's also this other dynamic to that that doesn't get talked about a lot that I didn't want that kind of power to like deem one family worthy of a child Mm. and another not was crushing for me because Mm. I poured over every word of every profile and every family wanted a kid. Every family wanted a baby. Every family had been through so much heartache and suffering. It was like, how am I supposed to say you get a baby and you don't? Mm. It was, um, and I knew, you know, because they get notified if someone's looking at their book and so I knew that they were going to know if I rejected them or not. And it was, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. lot. And when you're reading through these books, you know, I, I, from my perspective, I'm just trying to see if I can picture my baby in your family photos. Can I picture my baby in Saturday mornings at your house. Can I picture my baby with your holiday traditions or whatever nighttime routine or whatever. But at the, uh, on the other side of that too, I'm going, but this family wants that exact same thing. And is showing me it's, it's tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. Um, most women come to the table with kind of a list of, mm. um, what they're looking for. Um, so, you know, when families are in the wait and they talk about getting rejected again and all these no's I'm like, really though it's not really it's just a not yet like it's so it's so easy for me to be like don't take it personal if they don't pick you but this is so personal because we're talking about our family and about kids and is there something wrong with me because they didn't pick me but we are looking for something very specific and it could mm-hmm. be that we're looking for a family that doesn't have other children you don't need to be ashamed of the fact that you have other kids in your home like it's just not what I was looking for and what I connected with. And so um, from the, from the other side, the hopeful adoptive parent side to be able to sit and be okay with understanding that there was just something missing that she was looking for isn't means that there's something wrong with you. And that's yeah. tough. That's tough. Cause it feels very personal. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: you do though, narrow it down and you were able to, I don't know, notify a parent, (laughs) notify some parents. And this was pretty, you were pretty close to, this was a pretty quick process, right? Because you were close to delivery time.
1: Yeah. So I, um, back then, um, I went to the agency and told them the family that I had chosen And I did like a little scrapbook page because I was in the craft and hobby industry then, ironically enough, and did like a cute little, like, it's a boy. Like I had my first ultrasound, my first ultrasound at like almost eight months. Found out I was having a boy, put together like this little announcement, and then they photocopied it and faxed it over (laughs) to their house. And so she got a fax. Um, letting her know that just came across with this baby announcement that she was going to have a boy. And, um, so they were notified. And then this was on like March 6th. I wrote that letter and he was born April 4th. So we're less than a month Wow! From delivery. Yeah. And did you meet them in person? Yeah, so I was able to meet them once before birth. So meeting them for the first time, it's so weird. So any of you that are listening that are like in the wait, like, it's just weird. Like, what do you say to each other? I walk in, you know, I'm like a month away from delivery. So I am huge. And my parents are with me and they come in and we're just like, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) we are going to be connected forever because of this baby. And this is so weird. Um, But I walked in and I... I hugged her, Derek's mom, Lana, for the first time. And it was like, we just instantly were connected by this invisible string. It was like, we both acknowledged in that hug that like, we're going to share motherhood in this space and whatever that looks like, there is no going back. Hmm. And it was, and, and I feel that pull from her all the time. That string pulls very tight all the time. And we're not sharing motherhood in a way that people, you know, have fear about custody and co-parenting, but we both have a role to play in, in our son's life. And and we knew that then, and, and we've been strongly connected through that um, for all of these years. And so, um, We sat down and had super awkward conversation for three hours and trying to get to know each other and asking inappropriate questions, um, trying to understand what their household was going to look like. I was asking them like how they fight with each other and you know, you spank your kids and like things that I'm just like, I want like, you know, my dad's like totally mortified. Like I raised you better than that. You can't ask those kinds of questions. And I'm just like, I'm giving them my kid. I can ask them whatever I want. Like, (laughs) Yeah. So it was this crazy three hours of just like amazing, but it was so weird. It was so weird. Um, and then I called them like a week later and just said, I would love for you to be at the hospital. And they had adopted before. So they had a few kids in their home and, um, they weren't able, they actually didn't have the opportunity to do that with Derek's sister. That's four years older than him. And so it was very emotional for them for that invite. And, um, So I invited them and then everything else was prepping for delivery.
0: (laughs) That's, that's crazy. So, but that's awesome. And I'm glad that, you know, it did that you were able to, you know, match with them and that you got that feeling and that hug that that feels good. So, so you give birth and you go through with this process of adoption. Tell me about the, experience of giving birth realizing the adoption like you know there's a it's actually happening and then going home without
1: your baby um you know <laughs> the hospital is so hard it's always so hard but um there's kind of this and and I and I've heard from a lot of birth moms that have said this but for myself it was you you kind of get to the point to protect ourselves from trauma that's coming we just almost shift into this surrogate mode that this is your baby. I'm carrying this baby for you. Um, and some of that's because we're buying into the propaganda and some of that's just really protection for what's about to happen. Um, yeah. And so it really was like, this is your baby. I'm doing this for you. And it's going to be fine. (laughs) And, um, so when I, when I went to the hospital in my birth plan, I was like, I don't want to hold him. I I can't hold him. If I see him and hold him, it'll be too much. And, um, it was just me in the delivery room with the nurses and doctors. I didn't want anyone in there. And so they were, she, Lana was out, like the door was cracked and she was like listening to the door. Um, and as soon as he was born, I like reached up to like grab him and like pull him to me. And I was like, Oh crap, I wasn't going to do that and I couldn't, it was just so natural for me to go to him and hold him. And I was just looking at him like, I know you, like we've spent all these months in secret. It's just been the two of us. And I know you. And I know she, you know, as soon as he cried, I was crying and I know she wept on the other side of that door, hearing that cry for the first time. And, um, in Utah, you can relinquish as early as 24 hours after birth. And so, and it's, um, irrevocable the second you put pen to paper. And so there's no going back. (laughs) And so the agencies really like you to do that at discharge. Um, and so I had my two and a half days in the hospital and then I discharged from the hospital and relinquished at the same time. And then that was it. It was done. Um, and we had talked a little bit about a relationship and you know, being in, you know, we just, we're open to whatever you want, you know, all the very like superficial stuff that you talk. Cause you don't know, you don't know. So right. when we're making these open adoption agreements and these processes at the hospital. It's just like, you don't know what grief's going to look like. You don't know what attachment's going to look like. You don't know what postpartum for adopted parents is going to look like. You don't know what any of this is going to look like. And so, um, we just were kind of like, we'll just play it by ear and see how it goes. And so when I was saying goodbye to him, you know, I'm just leaning over his crib and I can just see his face. And it's just like, I was trying to memorize everything. Cause I was like, I literally do not know if I will ever see you again. Mm. And that is, and, and every, every mom, regardless of all the promises, it's our biggest fear, right? We're promises open adoption. This was 15 years ago. This was when it was very, very fresh and new. Something that was not commonly done. I mean, they were closed adoption. I mean, the agency was our middle person for correspondence and updates and things like that. And so the concept of that was so foreign to all of us. And I just I thought I'd never see him again. And we walked out and I, it was horrible. It is built adoption, this beautiful, amazing thing, is built in the most horrific grief that just if we can't get straight about how this starts, then we should not be adopting. We're missing it 100%. If we cannot Mm. respect and acknowledge the origin story of how this plays out, then we, then we don't get it. We don't get it. Um, Mm. and that I didn't actually get pregnant to make you a mom. Like I just, right. This is, this is my child and I'm walking away and, um, it's so tough. Um, and then, you know, I walked out the hospital and at the end of the hallway was all of this new family with balloons and celebration and aunts and grandparents and, um, just waiting to love on this new baby. And that, I think that's adoption. I think we have hope and healing on one end and grief and loss on the other. And we got to meet in the middle somewhere. Um, but we, you know, my dad said to me, you know, I feel like I'm leaving my grandson's funeral. And he carried his 26 year old daughter out of the hospital. Cause I just couldn't walk anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I come home and everything about my body is preparing for motherhood. I, I, my hormones are all over the place. My milk is coming in. I'm healing from birth. I'm bleeding and I have no baby. And my body's like, you're a mom start Mm -hmm. doing the mom things. And I was childless at that point. And that's, so now I'm in a whole new limbo of now what, because it changes you. It changes you to the core of who you are. My identity was shifted forever. And so now I can't go back because I'm not the same person that I was when I walked Mm -hmm. into that hospital. But, Mm -hmm. but where do I fit? Because I don't, I don't fit this mother mold because I don't have a baby and I don't know, I don't know how to fit. And so I think so many of us without that grief and trauma support, without that acknowledgement, without people talking to you, without that community around you, you just spin in this limbo that is so painful and unresolved. You know, that, that ambiguous loss, that disenfranchised grief that says you have grief, but there's no closure or explanation for it. And so mm-hmm. now I'm stuck in this, you know, whirlpool of limbo of now what? And it was crushing.
0: And does the shame, uh, the shame, the secrecy, like, so now you have a choice to make this part of your story, to tell whoever you want to tell. You know, that you are a mom and that you um have given a child um to another family, or you have a choice to never tell anyone, yeah. Um, and to go back to even though you can never go back, yeah, you can paint the story however you want, which I would think you know that was kind of the plan if you were keeping it a secret so much during your pregnancy. But how did you navigate that? You know, was it still this weight?
1: So I still had a, just a very, very small s- circle of people that knew. I told my siblings. There's four of us, so I had three siblings that knew, and my parents, obviously, and then his family. And that was it. Uh, I think it absolutely depends on the community around you, how you return back to society. <laughs> um, if you have a community around you that's like you did this thing and you helped this family and they seem great. Let's, you have a second chance. Let's pick up and move on. And if that's kind of the, the horse behind you, um, I think that it's very easy to, especially from that closed generation to just pick up and move on and act like it never happens. Um, uh, I think it's very common for women to not share that part of it that they just really do just try and pick up and 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 you can watch them in their actions their motivation and dedication to go back to school and get married and have other babies and do all these amazing things but if you strip that down that's just really part of one of those core issues that mastery and control and i want you know in the back of their mind i want to make my baby proud i can't feel the pain it's too hard so i'm going to bury myself in all this stuff Or you have someone like me that was Jerry Springer over here that was drug, sex, alcohol, whatever in this horrific state. And people pay a lot of attention to me because this story is easy to understand. You can understand why she's being crazy and self-destructive and in so much pain, but we miss all those women that are so productive and so on point and get their life together. And those are the stories that we use to sell adoption because she made this choice to place her baby and look how amazing her life is. But if, well, and they're all coping mechanisms, right? right? It's just coping. how they so manifest. If you really got okay. to strip that down and look at the driving force behind it, same as my driving force to be out of control, still the same thing, still our still children, still the grief of relinquishing our children, just plays out differently. Um, they're all still part of coping. So I think it really matters. The narrative now that's shared is really about how you feel about it personally Um, we talk a lot about guilt versus shame, you know, guilt is what I did and shame is who I am. When Mm -hmm. you're listening to birth moms talk and you talk like they feel guilty about what they've done, like, I feel guilty about this thing that I did, but at the heart of it, I still think I'm a good person to those Mm -hmm. that have felt like there's so much shame that they feel like they are a bad person because of what they did. And there's a big difference in that language and understanding whether they've had support, whether they've been able to process through some of that grief and it matters. It matters a lot. And so Mm -hmm. I think, um, so much out of the gate, that narrative is written very early on after relinquishment based on who's around them, what kind of knowledge they have around trauma, um, what kind of support and access they have to mental health resources. Um, and for me, it was very much, we're just going to move past it. It happened. It's a thing and we're going to move past it. And, I was very good about doing that um, publicly, um, but internally that did not connect. It did not make sense. And so um, when I was in private and and coping, it was all very self-destructive.
0: So what do you think um, some of the big assumptions that society makes about birth moms? That probably aren't true.
1: Um, You know, that's tough because this question is, I think this is one of the hardest questions that I never have a really great answer around because you want to talk about, it depends on what you're talking about. Because if we're talking about foster care, a lot of the stereotypes exist for a reason because all the stereotypes about domestic, you know, so you kind of have to break down what the difference is between foster care and domestic infant adoption and the birth mothers that are involved with that. Um, but you know, everyone's like, we're not all drug addicts and we're not all neglectful and abusive, but there's a lot of birth mothers that if they had their rights taken from them through the state are like that. And so it's hard to say that's not what we are. Um, I think the biggest stereotype is that we don't love our children. I think that is just so ignorant. It's ridiculous. Even even. Women that have had the state come in and have their children removed. I think if we are not addressing the generational trauma, if we're not looking at the underlying issues, if we're not um, looking at bigger picture and we're just looking at this woman neglected her child, I think we're missing it. Cause I think if you stripped it down and was able to heal all of that pain that happened before we got to this point, I think you would still find the love for a child somewhere in there. Um, but that's, that's loving a lot of crap piled on top of it. (laughs) That's really tough. Um, so I think that we don't love our children is really tough. Um, I, I think, I think it's easy. I think it's easier for us to understand why we would quote unquote, give away our children. Um, if we believe that we are doing this amazing thing it's easy to accept that this is such a selfless and amazing gift that we're giving that eases moral dilemma. That's easier for people to accept than if no, I was broke. I had all of this issue. You know, I didn't have it to I was raped. I was, you know, all of these issues that made us feel like we'd had no other choice. doesn't feel good on the other side. It's easier to say, Oh no, she wanted this. She did this because this was, the best and loving choice. Her, she loved her child so much that she gave them to mm. somebody else. How does that make sense? Adopting are right. ways to believe that love equals abandonment. That's not mm. the right message. And so I just think there's a lot of stuff that's spun to make the other sides feel better. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about why we come to the decision of adoption. Um, but for me, one of the biggest things is that we don't love our children or that we love them so much. And I just think that we're missing such a huge conversation in the middle.
0: Yeah, so you are an advocate and support birth moms. Yeah. You support them and um, you give them voice. So um, when you say birth mom, we just talked about it a little bit, are you talking any woman that has what? What's the definition of birth mom? How do you break it down? Okay, um, are there certain birth moms that don't see themselves in a category of other birth moms?
1: Um, uh, yes, I think personally, women relate to different things. There's, there's birth moms that don't like the term birth mom that would like to be first mother or natural mother, or, you know, so some of these things are very personal on how they relate and attach it to their story. For me, a birth mother is any woman that relinquishes the right to her children. Now, when you're breaking that down and looking at it, is there a difference between a woman who had the state come in and deem her unworthy of parenting versus a mother that got pregnant and deemed herself unworthy of parenting and made a proactive adoption plan. Yes, there is a difference. There's a big difference. There's a difference in the process. There's a difference in the counseling and support. There's a difference through the state being involved versus the child placing agency being involved. So when you're talking about domestic infant adoption and women that come to the table pregnant that make a pro-adoption plan proactive adoption plan, pick a family and want to be part of this open adoption or not, but part of an adoption process is different than the hoops and the regulations and the things that take, um, take place when they have to go through the state. However, for me in post-placement care, goes for any woman that has had termination or relinquishment of parental rights to their children. At the end of the day, whether the state took my child or I placed my child myself, I know grief and loss of my child. I know mm-hmm. relinquishment. I know separation. And so do I think that the women attach differently and their stories feel different, or maybe they don't feel like, and I've sat in groups where I've had women that placed through domestic infinite adoption that are like, you aren't a real birth mom like you had your rights taken away and I made this choice. Like, so yeah, I think there's a lot of that conflict, but at the end of the day for me, for serving the birth moms, post-placement care, relinquishment is relinquishment and there is healing and grief and trauma that needs to be processed. And I don't care if that was through the state or through an agency, it still matters. It still matters, but there is a difference for sure.
0: Yeah. So talk to me about post-placement support. I'm guessing it didn't really exist in your day, you know, 15 years ago. Does it exist now? I know you're an advocate for it, so so tell me about it and what it should be and what it is. So,
1: no, it did not exist. Um... Every agency in the country will tell you if you go to their websites and stuff, you know, they talk about that they love the women well, they offer this post-placement care, and you know, we do all this counseling and things like that. But you if you really strip it down and look at it, those the websites are written for the adoptive parents, the hopeful adoptive Mm -hmm. parents. They're the ones writing the checks to the agencies. It just, it just is what it is. And so again, going back to like it makes. Um, hopefully adoptive parents feel good to read this site and be like, man, this agency like cares about the women, they're going to care for them and take care of them once this is done. Um, but stripping that down and really looking about what that really looks like and what those services are, we saw such a huge gap in what was actually being provided. Um, and so through my own grief and trauma, um, and healing and how I finally came to start sharing my story to what we found was that. professionals weren't really providing what they should. And it really came down to whether this was a luxury and you had, um, you know, insurance and access to mental health support or you didn't. And, um, a lot of women don't want to come back to the source of their trauma. They don't want to come back and sit with their caseworker and hash out what happened because they're tied to their grief. They were a part of it. And so Mm -hmm. making sure that it becomes a standard that women receive post-placement care for life, and for me, I believe that should be a free service, um, was a really big fight for us. And so um, me and my small team wrote the nation's very first curriculum in post-placement care that includes training and materials and free month-to-month community support group, which means fellow birth mothers can come and sit knee-to-knee with each other and heal and process and work through trauma under the supervision of a mental health professional so that if something comes up in this self-discovery that the women go, oh my gosh, I think I really need a lot more work. We're now connecting them with professionals that can get them the right resources. Um, and that is 100% our die-hard. That <laughs> that is the hill that I am going to die on. These women deserve post-placement care. It is not about trying to bring down the man of adoption. I do not believe adoption's going anywhere. Um, I think it's always going to be here and it's always going to be, um, there's always going to be levels of coercion because of the money and all of these things. At the end of the day, for me, if women decide to choose adoption, they are going to need post-placement care and are they getting it? How are they getting it? And is it accessible and free for them? And that's what I care about because adopt, I can't, adoption is not going to go anywhere, but I can make sure that if that's what they choose, that they do have grief and trauma support so that we can close the gap from the time these women are leaving the hospital and home in this spiral of now what to the time that they get support, we need to close that gap. And so if it's something that's right off the bat, then we can be we can be more um, effective in our healing. It's not going to take the pain away of choosing adoption, but we can be more effective because we're more educated.
0: Yeah, and less isolated. Yeah. I feel like For a lot sure. of your
1: your first. Yeah,
0: yeah. So tell me about this knee to knee. I know that that is uh, your the website that um, I went to was knee to knee, and you just talked about moms actually being knee to knee. So where did you come up with that? Is that, um, you know, is that something you did or created
1: or? (laughs) Yeah. So I was actually sitting in a Dallas hotel room, (laughs) um, getting ready to speak in an event with an adoption group there. And I was kind of, um, doing Marco Polo's back with a several of the birth moms that have been working with me on figuring out how to create this. And we wanted to come up with something <clears throat> that would make sense to draw the women in and make them feel a part of something. And the women came back to me and they're like, you talk about sitting me on knee to knee all the time. Because, because I don't believe that online support groups are the way to process trauma. I don't, I think it causes so much damage when we're dumping all of this on social media. Um, and so social media is great for community building, but I don't think it's where we should be processing trauma. And That was all that was available. And they just said, you talk all the time about, I want to sit knee to knee with you. And if you've been with me in person, you know, I literally will scoop my chair up and like put my knees with you and like get in your face. And I've had so many women. And is that just something that's like part
0: of your personality or did you, did you learn that knee to knee? Like, where did you learn Um, being knee to
1: knee? I think I learned when it wasn't, um, super normal for my family to be that way. Um, but I definitely, when I, uh, you know, for me, the need for post-placement care for me, unfortunately ended in a, you know, failed suicide attempt and being locked in the mental hospital for five days. Um, Mm. and so for me, it was when the doctors were sitting knee to knee with me, what's going on, let's strip this down, let's figure this out. Mm. And then it was like, You mean I'm not the only woman in the world that's been through this? Because grief is so isolating and lies to you and makes you feel like no one will ever understand. And when I had people strip it down and really give a name to what I was going through and could see me and not just this shameful, horrible thing that I did like get pregnant, right?
0: Right. That saw me as
1: a person right. that had potential and abilities and that I could have the tools to process through this thing that happened, that this wasn't actually who I was. It was just something that we went through. Um it changed everything for me. And so I was like, I want women to be able to sit in person with other women that get it, that can see them, that can, you know, that me too connection. And that was really powerful for me. And it's something that comes very natural for me, whether I meet you on an airplane or whether I'm hosting a group or speaking to 5,000 people, you're going to feel that that's how close I am to you. Um, And so for us, for the birth moms, it was like, that was such a natural thing is sit knee to knee with us and let's, let's talk it out. And so we created that curriculum and those support groups around that knee to knee mindset that they would come once a month and sit in a circle and look at each other and touch each other and cry with each other and have it be an intimate connection instead of just a passive dumping on social media. And it became absolutely 100% everything that we train on and have been about.
0: That's awesome. So, what's the philosophy around "you're a big tough girl"? I see that on (laughs) your. I see that as a mesh message on your platform. Yeah, so
1: it became something that just was part of our family. You know, it's funny because I'll have a lot of like workout people and like (laughs) like health care like health um, health and wellness people come to me and like, Oh my gosh, like, do you have a workout thing? And I was like, no, 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 no. Not like that. Not like that. <laughs> it's like mental health tough girl. Um, but we had a, a so we've had some very significant things in my family. Um, my mom, um, had, uh, tumors taken out of her spine had her spine fused. She had her, she had thyroid cancer, had her thyroid out. Uh, My, my sister's husband, my brother-in-law was in a horrific um, dirt bike accident and shattered both of his ankles and they've been fused together. And uh, my family's just been through a lot of stuff, which I I know so many families have been through a lot of stuff. Um, And, you know, when I was pregnant and in the hospital, you know, my mom and I didn't talk much about it. Um, But she did, you know, it was just always like, you can do this. You're a big, tough girl. You can do this. You're a big, tough girl. And it just kind of became a thing for us and it really is just about we are capable of overcoming so much and i think that we forget ourselves we forget our strength and we forget our abilities and that we have everything that we need to get through this and it's not it doesn't mean that we're immune it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy it doesn't mean that it can't suck But, um, for me, you know, I talk all the time about, you know, I really believe that the greatest miracle about adoption is that we survive (laughs) and that there's Mm -hmm. life post placement. And that is, you know, for me being a big, tough girl is the fact that I continue to survive through it every day. And it's not about being perfect and it's not about being immune from it. It's just about acknowledging and being authentic and owning our own shit in it. I love it. I love it. So how do you feel like this, the community at large
0: could show up more?
1: Oh, you know, this is really tough. Um, and if you're active at all on social media, especially in the adoption community, um, it's tough to lean in and find a space. Um, you know, we, we, we all know, you know, we've got this triad, you know, so we've got all members, We've got our adopted parents and our adoptee, which is the adopted child and our biological parents, the birth parents, And we're all kind of in our corners. <laughs> that triad was created by the adoption professionals to kind of keep us in our corners. Um, we know that the adopted parents are this privileged voice because they are writing the checks. They just are, it's not, a dig on them, but they are the privileged ones. I believe that adoptive parents will be the ones to change adoption because they do hold the most power. They really do. Mm -hmm. And coming to the table and be willing to be educated on the ethical practices and understanding the birth parent perspective and allowing this if this really is about the child which we all say it is right this is about the child is it really though uh and i think a lot of that has to be answered by the hopeful adoptive parents when you're coming into this is it really about the child or is it about filling desires of our own hearts? tough questions and it's really tough to sit in um, and so it's easy for adoptive parents to feel shamed. I have so many mess, countless messages that are like, I feel like the crappiest person ever because I'm an adoptive parent. And that mm-hmm. guilt for adoptive parents, we, I work through that with, um, adoptive moms, all this. One of my number one things that we do in our one-on-ones is work through adoptive parent guilt. Um, but if we we have to be more educated before we start this process. And I know that home study education is not giving you what you need. I know that adoption agencies are not giving you the education you need. And so it is important to lean in and listen on social media. I think that, um, for birth parents, I wish, I wish there was more of them. I wish they would quote unquote, come out of hiding and come and share, but, still, still in 2020 in society, there's still so much shame around these unwed pregnancies and these, you know, these ideas of what women that get pregnant are like, and we don't know who the birth father is, or we, you know, there's still so much judgment that I don't blame that. Why would I come and post about my deepest shame for you to be attacked. Like it's not okay. And there's no, there's no love and there's no grace there. And so it's scary to share. It's terrifying to share. Um, so I would love to see more birth mothers come into a place of healing that they can share their, their experience and their story. It happened to us too. And, um, I think we have a right to have a voice in this space Um, And and it sounds like there's a role for the community at large as
0: well. If they're not connected at all, but say they're just in a church or they're in a school and they see somebody that is pregnant and that she doesn't know whatever that that she is going to go ahead and and, um, go through the adoption or you do are privy to that information. It sounds like being the ones that can have the grace and be supportive and have that word of support rather than judgment or gossip on the side or whatever we do sounds like that's
1: a pretty simple role that community could play. You would think and, and you're you're not gonna get through your life without meeting somebody that's attached to adoption. You're just not one in eight women are struggling with infertility. Adoption's gonna be in your circle. Um and I'll bet you guys know if you're listening, I know you know whether you know, a birth mom in your own personal triad, I'll bet you know more birth moms than you would even know. Cause they wouldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just think it's, there's just needs to be just a general grace for, for how this happens and comes, you know, the adoptive parents get all kinds of support and all kinds of praise and baby showers and, you know, family pictures and they get, they get all the moments they get a lifetime. Um, and the birth moms and the birth fathers don't get any of that. And, um, the adoptees, this, the adoptees are the ones living their adopted experience. You know, when, when we listen to adult adoptees, oh man, I promise you, I promise you as a birth mother listening to adult adoptees is literally my least favorite thing on the planet. It is so tough and so painful and i hear my son in every single thing that i every story that i listen to and it beats the crap out of me. It eats me alive. However, there is so much value. I talk all the time about take what works and leave the rest when you're going to lean into community and when you're leaning into your church and you're you're wanting to be an advocate it matters how you lean in. I don't have to attach every single thing that happened to them to what's gonna be my son and I's fate. However, there is value and there are things that are applicable that I can share even if it's not all relatable. There are yeah. things that are applicable. And so that matters. And um if your only education is coming from your church, you you are missing all of the big picture of adoption. I just encourage people to branch out and expand their reach, even if it's uncomfortable. You don't have to be bullied and you don't have to get beat up in your private messages, but it's okay to be a little uncomfortable um, and challenged in, in what your original mindset was.
0: Yeah, that, that um, openness yeah. to to see another perspective.
1: And we can't do this well if we're not willing to learn I mean, you just want, you you'll fail at your own individual triad all day. If you can't learn, look for signs, understand how to navigate certain situations. You just, I mean, we navigated in my own personal relationships. We navigated from having no contact to now having sleepovers. Like, I mean, you just don't learn how to do that naturally unless you're hearing, hearing ideas and things to apply from other people. I
0: love that. And it sounds like we can learn a lot. We already have learned a lot from you and we can learn a lot from you moving forward. So tell us about your work and where we can follow you and make sure that we stay connected.
1: Um, So, I am off of Facebook because I just cannot with Facebook. <laughs> so Instagram is my favorite social media platform. I'm on there um, at Big Tough Girl. Um, you can go to Big Tough and it will link you to all of our foundation work that we're doing, which includes our trauma program. Sit Me To Me.com is where you can find all of our birth mom and adoption resources. We have countless hours of a free video library that you can go and watch hours of content from me. um doing live videos from Instagram, um, Q and a specific topics. We have a bunch of free downloads of questions you should be asking your professionals to help kind of vet them and make sure that they're ethical and someone you want to work with. So we have lots of free resources on there. Um, if you're a birth mother listening, um, there's a link on there for you, free journaling classes, Um, Ways that you can connect, get connected with a local support group that's free, that's using our material and curriculum. Um, So there's a lot of great resources on there.
0: I love it. Well, what I'm going to do is link to your Instagram. I'll link to your websites as well in the show notes. This has been like just so helpful for me. It's just not something that we talk about, and it's actually really interesting because. You know, I have, I set out to actually connect with all people involved and birth moms have been, um, and I'm not saying it's on birth moms, it's on me, but like even being underrepresented in this podcast says something, you know? Yeah. So Yeah. yeah, I, um, I think that this perspective is really good and we can't, we cannot not have this voice.
1: Yeah. We are way past, we are way past the point for you know, adoption conferences and podcasts and blogs and things like that to not have all sides anymore. We don't get to do that anymore. And there's so many places, um, just in the last two years where they've never had a birth mom on stage and I'll come and speak. And they're just like, we can't go back now. Like you just, we don't get to do that anymore. We don't get to eliminate this voice, um, anymore. And the birth parents have a story to tell and it matters on how you navigate your adoption experiences moving forward. It does.
0: Y'all is Ashley a rock star or what? Ah, I just love that she is as bright as she is, that she has had the motivation to put this into a curriculum, that she has pushed for this. The fact that this doesn't exist you know, as a standard, like she said, universally is crazy. And, you know, even I obviously represented in this podcast where we haven't had a birth mom on before. It just shows that we just don't focus on the whole picture, on everyone involved. And that's a lot of times where the breakdown is. You know, she said something about, you know, it all works fine if we only care about the baby. Uh, But we need to care about everyone involved and, and we need to support those who choose life and choose adoption and and we can do that we can do that we can step up and do that one way you can step up and do that is share this podcast episode with anyone that you think could you know relate or benefit from the birth mom's perspective share this at your place of worship share this in your community share this with families that you know uh, are considering adoption and we can hopefully support and show up for birth moms more It's been a pleasure. I love talking to rock star guests like this. I will see you guys next week. Have a good one. Stay safe.